Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 142, Dr. R.T. Mullins on the coherence of classical theism. Dr. R.T. Mullins earned an M.A. in Philosophy of Religion from Trinity International University in 2010, and in 2013 he earned a Ph.D. in Theology from the prestigious University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He's been awarded a visiting fellowship at the University of Notre Dame and has been a lecturer at the University of Cambridge and at the Northfield Mount Hermon School in Massachusetts. He's published numerous articles and book chapters on topics like Life After Death, panentheism, God's timelessness, divine simplicity, and the Incarnation. But he's here with us again today to discuss his new book, The End of the Timeless God. Dr. Mullins, welcome back to the Trinity's Podcast. Thank you for having me again. Dr. Mullins, where does the term classical theism come from, and what sort of theology is classical theism? From what I understand in the 20th century, classical theism is this term that's deployed by process theists. And at the time, it was somewhat of a derogatory term. But today, it's, it's happily embraced by so many different people. And so it's no longer like a slur. Uh, so it'd be like, oh, you're a classical theist. That, that wouldn't be a bad thing to say anymore. But the main thing that would make one a classical theist is if you say that God is timeless, immutable, simple, and impassable. And those would be the sort of like the kind of the standard things to say about classical theism. There's other attributes you might want to throw in there as well, like omnipotence or omniscience. But people who are not classical theists, they can affirm those things as well. So you could have different understandings. So you could say God's in time, for instance, uh, and still say God's omniscience are all, are all powerful. So it's really classical theism. I think the demarcation there should be about understanding God as timeless, simple, immutable, and impassable. Was it actually coined by Charles Hartshorn? I think that's correct, yeah. But I wouldn't be surprised if, if you could find it earlier, but that's usually who it's traced back to. So process theology, we should say a little bit about what that is, because I think most people nowadays don't know what it is. I struggle to figure out what it is either, and I've read a lot of process theists. <laughs> um, they have a very different metaphysics than you or I would. They usually reject substances, or maybe at most God's the only substance that exists. Goes back to Alfred North Whitehead. Correct. Yeah. Who's this 20th century, very speculative yeah. philosopher. Yeah. And so Whitehead has a huge impact on, all, I mean, a lot of people, and, and Hartshorn does as well. So I can at least say a bit about their theology because I can't understand the philosophy that under, underlies it. Kind of like open theists, they're going to say God does not know the future. And somewhat like a lot of different theologians during the 20th century, they're going to want to say God can suffer with us. And in fact, the idea that God can suffer becomes so widespread during the 20th century that it's usually labeled as the, the new orthodoxy. Uh, and process theists were one of the really big people that really pushed that, said God suffers with us. But some of the more, more hallmarks, like uh, characteristics of process theology is this claim that God cannot like, unilaterally interact in the world. He can try to woo us, he can try to persuade us to act in various ways, but he can never override our freedom and he can never like just intervene in the world in, in sort of some sort of way, like more traditional Christians would say. It's like miracles are going to be out the window, like th th those can't be, those can't occur. Yeah, there's an anti-miracles vibe in it, mm -hmm. and there's a vibe where God is more closely related to the world than most monotheists have Yeah, thought. supposedly they might be a version of panentheism, but I don't know what panentheism is either. 
I've recently published a paper on panentheism, and, and, and so I'm somewhat convinced that there's just no such thing as panentheism. It's supposed to be this claim that the world is in God, but God's more than the world. And so that much is clear, but what that means is not clear. No one will give me a clear story. They'll just give me lots of metaphors for that. Process theology is supposed to be, could possibly be a version of this, but in some recent work, there's been people who have demarcated panentheism as its own thing, separate from process theology, because panentheists don't have to hold to the metaphysics that process uh, theists hold. So they criticize traditional Christian theology as too uncritically assuming Greek ideas. Yeah. And in the end, they're very revisionary and mm -hmm. very controversial to most yeah. Christian theologians. They are. It's very much an academic movement. It hasn't really gone out of the academy as far as I can see. Not really. Um, I mean, there are supposedly some movements within Methodist and Wesley, Wesleyan circles where process theology might possibly live on, but it really is in the academic circles. And with open theism and other movements uh, popping up, those are all the things that, that might attract someone to a process theist are usually better said or more clearly articulated without some of the weird problems in open theism or what I might would call a modified classical theism where, where you reject some of the classical attributes, but you don't uh, go as far as like open theism where you say that God doesn't know the future. So they coin this as a negative term, maybe yeah. even a polemical term in some Correct. writers. But then people turn around and say, well, it's classic. It's like classic Coke. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Classic rock. Right. It's a good thing. Because new Coke was terrible. We want the classic Coke, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's a really obscure old reference that most of the listeners will not get. Um, but that's fine. That's fine. Um, that's what you get dealing with an old guy. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised I remembered that reference, honestly. Um, so, yeah. Um, but that's the idea that, that it, it was originally, it sounds like it was supposed to be a derogatory term to say, oh, that's classical theism. And then now today it's, no, I'm a classical theist. I want to defend this. This is worth defending. And so it's become, it's, it's a very clearly defined position. And it's not just this process theology movement, and it's not just the open theist movement. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of sort of independent, but very traditional Christian thinkers abandoning a lot of elements of Correct. Christian theism, some of which are very famous and influential, like Professor Richard Swinburne in his many works. He departs right. from timelessness, yes. immutability, and so on. Yeah, so that's why I want to say that there's this position that sometimes it's called modified or neoclassical theism. So, for instance, one of my former professors, John Feinberg, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, he's a Calvinist, very reformed in his thinking, but he says God's in time, and God is not impassable, so God can suffer with us, and God's not simple. He rejects all those elements of classical theism, but yet still can affirm, you know, that God's a necessary being, God's all-knowing, God predestines the future, because he's, he's a Calvinist, like I said. There's a lot of uh, moves you can make before you get to open theism, and then a lot of a whole lot of moves you can make before you get towards process theism. So yeah, there's a lot of people. So like Swinburne would be a different example because he's quite different than, than someone like John Feinberg. And then another example would be someone like William Lane Craig, who denies that God's timeless, but he's a Molinist. He thinks that God knows the future, and God has this thing called middle knowledge, where God knows what you would do in any possible situation you might be put in. So you can reject classical theism, but you can also do it in a way of like sort of making modifications without having to reject the whole uh, shebang. Which you could describe either as sort of fixing classical theism or sure. denying it, but not as badly as the other guys. <laughs> yeah. And I'm trying to figure out where I exactly land. So I, I, like, I want to say I'm, I'm going to fall on the neoclassical or this modified classical theism. So for instance, there's this paper I have called Divine Perfection and Creation. 
one of the reviewers at the Heathrow Journal, you know, when I got the re- reviewer's report, he said, what I like about this paper is that Ryan Mullins is critiquing the classical tradition, but his modifications are not dissolving the classical tradition. So he's rejecting the classical understanding of God, but he's not dissolving it entirely because I'm just making modifications. And so he really appreciated that about, about, about my work. And so I think, I think that's, that kind of is where I'm trying to land as well is I'm going, here's this classical tradition. I think it's got some serious problems. Let's see if we can make some modifications. And if it turns out those don't work, then we got to, I think we have to start making some more modifications. But, but that's, that's the idea, at least for me, is we've got this classical tradition. I think there's problems. So we need to make some modifications. Dr. Mullins, from where I sit, I tend to think there's a big disconnect between the thinking of ordinary Christians nowadays and the ways that ancient and medieval theologians like, for instance, Augustine of Hippo thought about God. Let's talk about some of these lesser-known alleged divine attributes, things on which classical theists insist Mm -hmm. today against so many dissenters in the Christian traditions. Last week, we talked about divine timelessness which is that God, he might be at times, but Mm. he's not in any times. Correct. And that leads right into the next one on the list, which you discuss in your book also, which is immutability. What is immutability? Yeah, so immutability is the claim that God does not change. Most Christian theologians, even those who reject classical theism, want to say that, because there's passages in the Bible that says, I'm not a man such that I would change. But the classical doctrine of immutability is much stronger than I think the average person realizes. It's the claim that God doesn't change in any way, shape, or form, not even relationally. So, for instance, I want to say this. I would like to say that I was once a child of of wrath. And then when I uh, accepted Christ, then God delighted in the fact that I repented. And I'm now no longer in a a relationship of wrath towards God. God now has a particular kind of love towards me because I'm now a, a repentant individual and trying to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is not true on classical theism, at least not literally, maybe metaphorically, but it's not literally true. On classical theism, God cannot change in any way, shape, or form. So God does not go, ooh, I'm mad at you right now because you're a sinner. Oh, now you've repented? Oh, I'm going to delight in that. No, 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 God cannot change at all. So it has to be the case that he is just always the same no matter what. So somehow, paradoxically, you change with respect to God, but Mm -hmm. he doesn't change in any way with respect to you. Correct. Yeah. So God doesn't undergo any kind of changes, not even relational changes. So for instance, right now I'm sitting in front of you. Say I stand up and walk behind you. Now you change relationally in terms of having once been the case that Ryan was in front of you, and now it's the case Ryan was behind you. And so you undergo what's called relational change or a Cambridge change. Traditionally, classical theologians have said God doesn't even undergo, undergo that. God doesn't even undergo Cambridge change, these relational changes, because that would make God mutable and he would change and therefore he would be in time. And that leads us right into the next one, which is impassibility. This one's a tricky one because a lot of the discussion of it in the 20th century is not great. People who reject it and affirm it, they usually often talk about it in terms of caricatures, really. 
and so that makes it kind of tricky. Another thing that makes it tricky is, so the doctrine really just very straightforwardly says God does not have passions. Impassibility means no passions. But what is a passion? And there's not a lot of agreement in the tradition on what a passion is. Some people think that passions are these emotions and all emotions are bad. Either morally bad or irrational. Correct. Or yeah, or both. Exactly. So like if I have an emotion, it's going to make me do bad things or it's going to make me act irrationally. And then others are going to say, well, some passions are like that. Some are not. And so it's trying to, it's really hard to get clear on what's going on there. So here's one of the really clear claims though, that I think we can make. Part of the claim of impassibility is that God cannot suffer in any way, shape or form, no suffering whatsoever. And nothing outside of God can move God in any way, shape or form. But there's a deeper claim here that grounds that. Why can't God suffer? Well, it's because God is perfectly happy and immutably happy and necessarily happy. And his happiness is based entirely on himself. So nothing outside of himself can cause him to not be happy and nothing outside of himself can cause him to be more happy. So there's nothing I can do that can diminish his happiness or add to his happiness. And that's why God doesn't suffer in any way, shape, or form, because nothing can diminish this perfect, necessary happiness. And finally, on the list, we have divine simplicity, mm, mm -hmm. which is, in my judgment, the most difficult one to explain to somebody who hasn't read a ton of medieval theology and or middle Platonism. Right. So what is divine simplicity? On the face of it, it seems odd to call God simple. Like, what does he mean? He's stupid? It's not that. Right. Yeah. What is it then? Yeah. So the intuition is that God's not composed of parts. He's not a composite being. So like my body is a composite substance. A lot of other little like bits and pieces of it that come together to make my body up. And so you can cut my body up and you can divide it up. And that would not be a good thing. Uh, and so we want to say the same thing about God. We can't divide God up. He's this simple substance. So that's part of it. But it gets a lot stronger than that. The underlying intuition here is that God is, again, God's not dependent upon anything outside of himself in order to be who he is. No dependency whatsoever. And so if he's composed, well, then he's dependent upon the things that he's composed of. So he can't be composed of anything. If he had parts, he would depend on the parts. Correct. Even not, not necessarily even parts, strictly speaking, right? Correct. So if you had a fundamental physical particle, it still might have distinct properties, like Correct. spin and charge and location. Mm -hmm. But he's not even supposed to have distinct properties. Correct. And so that's what's been really frustrating is a lot of, um, especially Protestant scholastic theologians, they'll talk about properties as if they are parts. That's a weird uh, understanding of parts, and they don't really spell out why they think those are parts. I think what's going on, though, is they want to say that God's not dependent upon these platonic forms in order to be who he is. So I have properties like wisdom, power, etc., and so forth, and they're derived from maybe these abstract objects that just is wisdom, or this derived from God's wisdom. So the way a Platonist thinks about it is there's this eternal thing called wisdom. Correct. Or wisdom itself. Yes. Or wiseness or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the property of wisdom, which is this eternal, unchanging reality, and somehow it becomes present in you, or instantiated in you, philosophers mm -hmm. say, or yeah. you participate in it. Yeah. So then you're wise only in dependence upon this eternal exactly. property. But they don't want to say that God is dependent on anything, mm -hmm. whatever. Exactly. So yeah, God can't be dependent on anything. So it has to be the case that he doesn't get these properties of wisdom or power or goodness, whatever, from something else. So they make it the case that God just has these properties. And he's the source of these properties. Well, that's all well and good, but simplicity goes even further. So simplicity actually says, look, God doesn't have any properties at all. So anything you might say like, wisdom, power, and goodness, those are all identical to each other and identical to the very essence and substance of God. 
So you'd say God's good, God's wise, God's beautiful, whatever. Well, those things are all actually identical because they're identical to that just the substance that is God. So it's just God. And this is precisely where my students' eyes glaze over when I'm trying to explain this. Right. Or some of the smarter ones think, well, wait, this is obviously false. I mean, God's wisdom is that in virtue of which it's true that God is wise, mm -hmm. and God's goodness is that in virtue of which it's true that God is good. And I mean, aren't these just two different qualities that he has, two admirable qualities? In your mind, they are, but in reality, they're just identical to God. And so a lot of theologians will talk this way and they'll say like, in my mind, I can make these distinctions about God, but in God, there are no distinctions at all. None whatsoever. God can have no properties, period. And actually further, there's no dis conceptual distinctions even to be made in God, which is a really radical claim. Part of what's going on there is this intuition that if I can divide something up in my mind, then I can divide it up in reality. So if I can come up with these conceptual distinctions in God, then maybe there's something in God that actually would ground these conceptual distinctions. So then maybe God's divisible. So the claim is really strong. It's that, well, then not even my conceptual distinctions apply to God. So I can say, like, well, God's wisdom is different from his power. Oh, but in reality, no, it's not. It's not. It's not at all. So God has no properties, no conceptual distinctions even, no distinctions whatsoever. Yeah, and one of the baffling things about this tradition, which is pre-Christian, it comes into yeah. Christianity, some of the main exponents of it, people like Augustine and Aquinas, are fully Trinitarian. Correct. And that looks like it's going to require you to say there's three somethings. Correct. Properties, modes, relations. But we can't say those things, though. Yeah, that's... So we can't say God has properties. That gets ruled out. And there's only the, the one substance. That gets ruled out. And so the move is really weird. They, they make this claim that, well, God can somehow have relations within himself. What grounds these relations person? Well, what are these persons? And then it gets mysterious really fast. Um, but but yeah. we said relations in the plural. Yeah. We just used a plural noun there. <laughs> yeah. So there's some contemporary theologians who are working on divine simplicity. And they'll say, well, the persons are identical to acts. So this is another part of divine simplicity, I should say. Part of divine simplicity is the claim that God is pure actuality. He has no potential whatsoever. So I have the potential to do one thing and, or, or not do it. God cannot have any potential because potential involves going from not acting to acting. And so that would make God mutable and then he would be in time. And we can't have that on the classical understanding of God. So God has to be pure actuality, no potential. And further, all of his actions are identical to each other and identical to himself because simplicity is all these big identity claims. So the divine persons, we supposedly can distinguish them by the acts, the act of the father generating the son and the act of the father and the son spirating the Holy Spirit, whatever those things mean, you know, but those are three distinct acts. But the problem is though, divine simplicity says that all of God's actions are identical to each other and thus identical to God. So if we say that, well, there's three divine acts in the Trinity and that's what these persons are, there's three divine acts. Well, they're identical to each other and identical to God. There's really I, just one act. Right. And I don't really have a trinity anymore. At least not a trinity that I could recognize. Well, it looks like you would have the trinity be merely apparent and not mm -hmm. real. Yeah. So on the level of conventional reality, the level of, you know, the language I could use or the illusion in my mind, I, like this is the case. But the ultimate, the way that things ultimately are, no, no, there's just this undifferentiated substance that we call God. 
conventional reality. Man, we got really Buddhist really fast here. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what one of the things I find funny is uh, in actually in some Hindu schools of thought, like Shankara, like there's this doctrine mm-hmm. of divine simplicities at play there. God has no qualities whatsoever. So this doctrine of divine simplicity is not unique to Christianity. It exists in Judaism, it exists in Islam, and it exists in uh, Hinduism as well. And then in some versions, of course, Buddhists are not going to say it's divine simplicity, but this idea of this qualityless consciousness that exists yeah. you know, in the world, they're going to say that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's arguably more at home in a worldview where there's an, an ineffable, inconceivable ultimate mm-hmm. that's the uh, source of all else in some sense, yeah. not a god. Right. But like I said, this is historically in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And what, it, what simplicity does push us to do, it does push us towards saying that God is ineffable, unknowable, and unspeakable. Because since God has no properties, God has no distinctions, no potential whatsoever, all of our ways of conceiving God then, they just fail to really talk about him. Because I can't think about God without drawing some sort of distinctions between like, you know, his, his power and his wisdom but that all fails. So we do get pushed to say God is completely unknowable or ineffable, unspeakable. And I feel like that's a really serious problem for Christianity if God becomes unspeakable and unknowable. Dr. Mullins, let's talk about Christian teaching specifically and and actually about scriptural teaching. Mm. In your view, scriptural teaching, whether explicit or just kind of obviously implied, in your view, it contradicts all of these four properties that we've just mentioned, timelessness, Mm. immutability, impassibility, and simplicity. So let's just go down the list. I mean, what is it you think in the scriptures that contradicts timelessness? I think the fact that God just appears to be changing throughout the entire story. This is a God in history. So, for instance, the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. In classical theist affirmed what I'm about to say. The doctrine of creation ex nihilo says there's a state of affairs where God exists without creation. And then there's a state of affairs where God exists with creation. Now, classical theists have traditionally wanted to say God does not change in this process. Somehow he doesn't go from not creating to creating, even though creation is not co-eternal with him. Where when you look at Old Testament scholars like Terence Freedom or Walter Brueggemann and some others, they're going to want to say the doctrine of creation clearly entails that God was not always the creator, and then he became the creator. This is a new moment in the life of God. Some people think that time couldn't not exist or that time goes infinitely backwards, and Mm -hmm. then they would have at a certain moment God creating. Correct. And it looks like he would go from being unrelated to anything else to being related to other things now. Right. Specifically as creator to creation. Yeah. But then other people would think that time gets created with the cosmos, Mm -hmm. but that still looks like a change. Exactly. Because he's gone from a timeless, unrelated mm-hmm. state to now a temporal and related state. Yeah. So he's not doing anything, and then he's doing something. I don't think that God creates time, because I think that time flows necessarily from the divine nature. So I'm going to hold the absolute theory of time that I talked about in the previous episode. But even if you hold a relational theory of time, where time just is change, and you say that God created time at the moment of creation, 
then it still seems like God's undergoing a change. This is a new moment in the life of God. So T.F. Torrance, who is a Scottish uh, theologian, so he says that God was always father, but was not always creator. What T.F. Torrance means by this is that God was always triune, uh, like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But creation, though, he says, like, that's clearly a new moment in the life of God. God wasn't essentially the creator. He was free to do whatever he wanted. He was free to create any universe he wanted. He didn't even have to create at all. But he does create, and that he takes on a relationship, and that's a new moment in his life. And so I feel like that right there is a massive, massive contradiction with the doctrine of divine timelessness. But just as you said, the entire story, I mean, from a certain date, he's now in a covenant. Mm -hmm. He wasn't in the covenant before. Or at this moment, he's parting the Red Sea, right. and he wasn't doing that a minute ago. Yeah. He wasn't exercising his power in that way. Right. It seems like he's doing one thing after another. Abraham does not always exist. Abraham comes into existence, and then at some point in Abraham's life, God goes, hey, let's enter into a covenant relationship, because I've got some big plans for you and your people, and I want to bless the entire world through you. That's not something God was always doing. It might be the case God always had that plan in mind, but it's not the case that God was always actively executing that plan. Because he has to wait for certain things to come into existence for him to execute that plan. Another really vivid kind of case, although I think only open theists take this literally, mm -hmm. is the episodes where it seems to say that God changed his mind. Right. So the repentance passages in the Old Testament, there are quite a few of them. An unfortunate number of systematic theologians just ignore them entirely. The standard move from classical theists is to say there's all these passages that, that where God says he repents, meaning he changes in some sort of way. It might be, I had this plan and I want to modify my plan a little bit, or I'm really sorry that this sort of stuff is happening to you, O Israel. There's a lot of different ways repentance is used of God in the Old Testament, but all of them imply some kind of change. And since classical theists say God can't change in any way, shape, or form, what they say is what those passages really mean is that God does not change, but God changes everything else. So somehow these passages that say explicitly God changes, what they really mean is that God does not change, but he changes everything else. It's changed language used for our convenience mm -hmm. because somehow this is helpful to us. Yeah. And so I find that really odd. I don't find that a very convincing way of understanding the Bible. And here's what the thing that I found very fascinating is there are a lot of classical, not a lot, but there are several really important classical theists who openly admit, yeah, the Bible does not teach divine timelessness at all. So let me give you a couple names here. So Stephen Sharnock uh, in the 1600s very clearly says, look, yeah, the Bible does not teach that God is timeless because timelessness means without beginning, without end, and without succession. You will not find that without succession clause in the Bible anywhere. And Sharnock further, he's going to say like all the terms in the Bible that describe eternity, they are all temporal words. Like they mean everlasting or they just mean a really long time. Mm -hmm. So he's going to say, right, this isn't a biblical doctrine. But we know by a reason that it has to be true. And so I, I really respect that about Sharnak because he's being intellectually honest, saying it's just, it's just not taught in Scripture. Here's another reason I respect Sharnak is he, he feels that since he is a classical theist, and he's trying to be you know, a good Calvinist and, and really base his beliefs on the Bible, he says, well, I, now I have to give a reason for why the Bible does not teach this doctrine, which we all know to be true. And so you're like, okay, well, right, good. The, he, he realizes the burden is on him to explain why does the Bible not teach that God's timeless. This answer isn't great. Um, his answer is, well, because of the weakness of our minds, the Holy Spirit chose not to reveal himself to us as timeless. The time was not yet right. Yeah. It would be really confusing for God to, to, to explain to us that he's timeless. It would be imprudent for God to do such a thing. 
The irony being, of course, that Stephen Sharnock has a pretty good understanding of divine timelessness. So he's not too dumb to understand it. So maybe God could have if, if, it, if it really was the case that he's timeless. Yeah, and if you believe it, you know, Augustine seemed to do fine with it and right. the Cappadocians. And you know, come on, what really changed? Did God, for this to be palatable, need to have Greek theology come plow the field somehow? And then only then would people understand it properly? I mean, that's it's not that hard to understand. I mean, yeah, and I think that's, and you do see that sort of claim sometimes. So sometimes the metaphor of like the Jews like stealing all the treasures from the, the Egyptians, uh, that gets used to talk about how we stole all the treasures from the Greeks uh, when Christianity gets up and running. But let me talk, talk about a passage in, in Revelation to kind of to get uh, what, what, I, what I want to say here. Okay, going back to Plato, there's a way of talking about God in the timeless present, talking about God in a timeless tense, uh, in, like in a present tense. And that's available to Christian authors because, like I said, it predates. And it is available to the New Testament authors as well because it's such a commonplace way of speaking. And yet the author of Revelation could have spoken in terms of God as in this timeless present, this timeless is. But instead, the author of Revelation uses this phrase that's completely unique during that time period, which is God is the one who was, is, and is to come. And so the author of Revelation intentionally uses like these three tenses here to talk about God. And so I think you can say, you know, like this does proclaim that God's eternal, but it clearly doesn't give us timelessness because it's God has a past, God's doing stuff now, and God has a future. That's a really interesting point because in a somewhat Hellenized environment, that almost might seem like putting your finger in the eye of the right. timelessness people. Mm -hmm. You might think it's kind of a Hebraism, mm -hmm. you know, talking about the ancient of days. Yes. But that's the first thing that a Greek-minded person would say can't be literal. Right. It can't be that he's literally old. Yeah. Whereas this phrase, the one who was, is, and is to come, it's utterly unique. You don't really see Christians adopt that language until about a century or two afterwards, apparently. Whoever wrote Revelation seems like he's really trying to make a very specific point about God that does seem like it flies in the face of everything else that's being said about God outside of, outside of Christianity. Let's move on then to the second one in the list. How about immutability? This is closely connected to what we just talked about, I think. It is. So there are a couple passages that say God does not change. I can't do the same move I can with timelessness where I'd be like, there just is no evidence, period, game over. With immutability, there are passages like in, in, in Samuel and Numbers and Malachi and in James where it talks about God not changing. The problem is, and most Old Testament, New Testament scholars agree on this, at today at least, that those passages do not give us the strong doctrine of immutability where God does not change in any way, shape, or form. Most Old Testament, New Testament scholars will say these passages where it talks about God not changing, they have a very specific scope in mind where it says God does not change. So for instance, it might be, well, God made a promise. And human persons, they're not always that great about keeping their promises. So when God makes a promise, he's not like a man that's going to change his mind. He's going to stick with it. And so that's really what the scope is of these changeless passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the mythologies of the many nations, sometimes a god will die. Mm -hmm. 
or somehow his allegiances will shift right or his favor will be lost mm-hmm. some of the deities are portrayed as rather capricious yeah and a little bit unpredictable and dangerous well god is dangerous i think in the bible sure. but not because he's going to lose his temper or suddenly you know get married and move away or mm-hmm. you got a new girlfriend all your old friends are out of it right and out instead, of favor now yeah instead we see the exact opposite and so when you read like the old testament prophets for instance what we see is god saying you israel I was the faithful one to you, and you are the one who are being adulterous. You're the one who's losing your faith in, in us. So instead of God going, ah, I found a new girlfriend, it's you guys, you guys, you found a new person to, to follow. So God, his, his faithfulness, his immutability is, is talked in terms of his faithfulness to this covenant to Israel. It's not this doesn't change in any way, shape, or form. It's very specific about, I, your God, have made a promise. I am going to stick with it. How about impassibility then? That one... I feel like it's very safe to say there's just no biblical evidence whatsoever on this one, because you see throughout the Old Testament, constantly God's going, I'm really upset by what you have done. I hate your hypocrisy and your yeah. crappy ceremonies. And, right. So in Ezekiel, yeah. God gets so, the book of Ezekiel, God gets so, so disgusted by their sin that his special presence in the temple, he just he's just like, I'm gone. I'm just leaving the temple entirely. So this is a God who is moved by what's going on in the world. And that just goes right against impassibility, which says that God is not disturbed by anything. Nothing can diminish his happiness. Nothing external to God can move him to do anything. And yet what we see in the Old Testament is God is moved by by what's happening in the world. So the Ezekiel case is a great one. Let me give you a different one, the Exodus story. When Exodus starts out, you have the Israelite people who are enslaved to uh, Egypt, and they're suffering. And the way that uh, a lot of Old Testament scholars will point out is, the Hebrew people, they just cry out for help. They're just like, help. And it's not to anybody in particular. They just cry out, this incohate cry out in the, in the wilderness, somebody help. And then the Exodus story says, and God heard their cry. He's compassionate. He wants to help them. So he hears their cry, and then he comes to them to rescue them out of, out of Egyptian slavery. That's a God who's moved by our plight, and that's not an impassable God. To be compassionate is to be disposed to suffer when you sympathize with the plight of the other person. Right. And impassibility says, no, God's not like that. God's metaphorically merciful, but he's not literally merciful. If he's literally merciful, then that means he's going to be disturbed by what happens. And so so Aquinas is like, then therefore God's not literally merciful. God's metaphorically merciful because God cannot be disturbed by seeing what happens to us. God still acts to you know, save us from our, from our suffering. And so that's why he's metaphorically merciful, but he's not literally merciful. Because being literally merciful means I'm bothered by your situation, and now I'm going to help you get out of your situation. But God's not bothered by your situation. Another Old Testament thing that jumps to mind is in one of the minor prophets, he tells the prophet to marry a prostitute. Oh, Hosea, right, yeah. Yeah, Hosea. Gomer, mm-hmm. strangely, right? strange name for a prostitute, yeah. but I guess it sounded better back then. Yeah. Yeah, so now he's the betrayed husband mm-hmm. who's having to watch her disgrace him all around town mm-hmm. and bring who knows what back home. Right. And that's God. That's God, yeah. <laughs> he's the dismayed, violated husband right? who just can't stand what Israel's doing. Yeah. And so, to be clear, like, that is a metaphor. Like, this marriage to a prostitute is a metaphor to all of Israel going... Yeah, it's idolatry compared to adultery. exactly. And then saying, like, Israel, this is what you're doing to God. So, it is a metaphor. But how metaphorical is it in terms of God's suffering? Classical theism is going to have to say it's a metaphor through and through. 
it's not pointing to any literal reality in terms of God actually suffering. Whereas someone like uh, Old Testament scholar like Terence Freedom is going to say, we have to go with the grain of the metaphor. What is the metaphor really pointing us towards? It's pointing us towards the fact that God is really upset by what's going on here. God does not like the idolatry and the, and the whorish behavior of Israel. He doesn't like it at all. And he's very disturbed by this and he wants it to end. So we can say, yeah, there's, there's metaphors going on here, but the metaphors seem like they're pointing towards some sort of reality where God is disturbed by what happens in the world. And the last attribute we were going to talk about is simplicity, mm-hmm. but I mean, this one's kind of just a no-brainer, right? right. There, just, there isn't anything anywhere in the Bible that even sounds like him no. saying, I don't have any distinct properties, right. components, or parts. Yeah, there's no passage where you know Isaiah says, thus saith the Lord, I have no potential. And there's no passage in Paul that says, you know, this has been revealed unto me, you know, like I have no distinctions whatsoever. All I my attributes are identical. You just don't see that. Instead, what you see is that God has lots of accidental properties. God was not always creator, and he becomes a creator. And that's an accidental property that God has. God was not always the redeemer, and then he takes on this accidental property of redeemer. He wasn't always the Lord of creation, because there wasn't always a creation, and he becomes the Lord. I point these out for a reason. Because the traditional doctrine of, of simplicity says God has no accidental properties at all. And the classic examples that Augustine and Boethius, Peter Lombard, Aquinas, James Arminius, you name it, the classical examples of accidental properties are creator, redeemer, and Lord. All these classical theists say the Bible says God has these attributes, but it's not the case that God has these properties because God can't have any accidental properties. And an accidental property is just a property that it's possible that you not have. Correct. Yeah. Non-essential. So, yeah. So I'm not a father. I don't have any kids, but I could become a father. And so that'd be an accidental property that I would take on. If God's simple, he has no properties, period. And certainly no accidental properties, because accidental properties would imply change, so therefore he would be mutable and not timeless. And so if God was creator, or if he was redeemer or Lord, if those are accidental properties God has, then he wouldn't be simple, he wouldn't be immutable, and he wouldn't be timeless. But the Bible has no problem saying God is creator, redeemer, Lord. And yet classical theism is at pains constantly and explicitly to explain away those properties from God. Dr. Mullins, in your view, none of these divine attributes that we just discussed is taught in the Bible, either explicitly or implicitly, and yet from a fairly early time, at least at the level of theology and the level of the the sort of bishops whose writings have come down to us, it seems that most mainstream theologians took these to be non-negotiable parts of Christian theology. In your view, how did this happen? I mean, take it to your view that it shouldn't have happened, but mm-hmm. what went wrong? I think it is these intuitions about what it means to be a perfect being that, that, I, that I talked about before. They inherit these intuitions about perfection, and then when they come to Scripture, and they're very very explicit about this, that like they're like, look, Scripture does seem like it says something very different here. How do we explain this away, though, has been the, the standard move throughout most of church history. They don't necessarily put it in terms of explaining it away, but they do feel it is a problem that they have to address. So I think it really is these intuitions about perfection that get inherited from other sources. And Christians do 
critically um, engage those intuitions. They do critique them. They don't wholeheartedly just accept whatever Greek philosophy told them. But I don't think they critiqued it enough. I don't think they really examined those intuitions about perfection enough. Now, to some people, this position of yours will look like an audacious departure from mainstream Christian tradition. Do you view this as essentially a kind of reformed project where you're continuing the process of going back to the sources that began at the Reformation? Or, in your view, can a Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox Christian accept the kind of position that you argue for in the book? I would like to say it's an ongoing project of the Reformation, but not that many people during the Reformation held this view, and Protestant scholasticism very much strongly opposed this view that I hold, that God is in time. But today, you know, like I said, there's like people like Karl Barth or uh, T.F. Torrance, who are very much in the Reformed tradition. They'll say God's not timeless. They'll say God's in time. And they feel like they're trying to get back to Scripture and make modifications to the, cl- the classical doctrine of God. So I feel like I- I'm trying to do that project, make modifications. If I'm radical, then, you know, Karl Barth and T.F. Torrance are radical. And it's kind of hard to say that that T.F. Torrance is radical. But in Catholic traditions, though, that's harder to say because Catholics have more official teachings than the average Protestant does. But there are people like Hans Balthasar who rejects the doctrine of divine timelessness. He fails to do so because what he teaches saying this is God's temporality is explicitly the doctrine of divine timelessness. Karl Barth does the same thing. But they say, though, they say they're rejecting the doctrine of divine timelessness. I just think they do the worst job possible at it. And Balthazar is a very popular figure in contemporary classic Catholic theology. So there might be room in Catholic theology for this. And I've definitely met some open theists who are Catholics. Um, I don't know how they felt their views were consistent with Catholicism, but they, they thought they were. Eastern Orthodoxy, though, I really don't know what to do with that. I mean, Richard Swinburne is an Eastern Orthodox now. He converted later in life. And as far as I know, they're happy to have him. But I don't know if his view really does line up with what most Eastern Orthodox theologians would want to say. But if, if they'll accept him, then I guess there's room for divine temporality in Eastern Orthodoxy. Dr. Mullins, do you think that the position that one takes about these specific attributes is also a practical and spiritual matter? Or do you think that it's purely theoretical? I think it is practical. Actually, after the Reformation, the way a lot of Protestant theologians write their systematic theology books, so they'll take each attribute of God and and explain it. And at the very end of each attribute, they'll give like a little mini sermon on why it's practically important, each attribute is. I want to do the same. I want to say like, uh, I think that's right. I just reject their understanding of God, but I think it is practically important. So I guess let me give you one example of this. So if God is impassable, that means that nothing I can do has any impact on God whatsoever. God is not delighted by my coming to accept him, nor is he distraught by me suffering. And so in moments of suffering, I can say, God, do you even care? And the answer would be, I'm perfectly happy. And they're like, thanks, thanks, thanks for caring, God. Whereas if God actually suffers with me in solidarity, I think that does have a really interesting practical impact on my spiritual life, going, God's not going to let me suffer in silence. He's not going to let me suffer alone. He's going to come down with me in space and time, in human form even, in the incarnation, and say, I'm right here. I'm going to take on this human situation with you. I understand what it's like to be you. I understand your situation. Whereas I don't think a timeless God, an impassable God, an immutable God, or a simple God can do that. It doesn't seem to me that a God who is timeless and immutable and passable and simple can be a God who actually cares about us or takes delight in in us when we come to repent to him. And I think this is very, very different from the God of the New Testament, from the God that Jesus worships. So there's a story that Jesus tells the prodigal son. The father in the story is supposed to be representative of God. 
And so the story goes, you know, the, the, the son goes to the father and says, hey, I want my inheritance. Even though you're not dead yet, I still want my inheritance. And for some reason, the father gives it to him. And the son squanders it and everything. And then the son ends up in a very destitute sort of place. And the son's like, you know, I'm going to go back to my father's house. And maybe he'll let me be a servant there. Because even the servants get treated better than what I'm getting treated right now. So the son goes home. And the father does something very interesting. Something that an impassable God would not do. Because an impassable God, again, is perfectly happy in himself and nothing can move him to do anything. Whereas in the story of the prodigal son, when the father sees his son from a distance returning home, he is so deeply moved by this that he does something unexpected. Even in that time period, this is something fathers do not do. They do not lift up their tunic and then run. You do not do that. And the father in this story, which represents God, is one who runs to the son. He is so delighted when his lost children come home. That is a sort of God of the New Testament who is moved by our plight, who wants to come to us. And that is not something an impassable God can do. So the practical implications there, I think, are very deep. Do we worship a God who is not moved by anything we do, or do we worship a God who runs to us out of celebration when we come home to him? Dr. Mullins, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. Today's Thinking Music has been the track Untitled by Jesse Spillane. It's from his album called Descent of the Goober Monster. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share the podcast on social media. Help us to get the word out on Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and so on. Another thing you can do is give us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. For some directions on how to do this, just go to trinities.org slash blog slash review. You can support the podcast by giving us a one-time or a monthly donation through PayPal. Just look for the orange buttons on the right side of any blog post. Every little bit helps. And if you shop at Amazon.com, enter that website through a blog post. If you do this and then make a purchase, then without increasing your price, we get a small percentage. Lastly, make your voice heard. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our very active Facebook group at facebook.com groups trinities. We're always open to show ideas, guest suggestions, objections, and so on. Sometimes I even respond to feedback in an episode. Don't forget then to share, to rate, to chip in when you can, and to talk back. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.